0: We're going to be looking in 1 Kings today, so if you'd like to get ready for that, 1 Kings, primarily chapters 18 and 19. While you're looking, I want you to imagine that you're building a house. And you're not a skilled laborer. Your job is just to carry the materials, everything that goes into the house, to the master builder. He takes what you give him and constructs a home. You carry faucets and tubs and sinks and pipes and two-by-fours and one-by-sixes and even granite countertop. At some point in all this, you get tired, and you begin to tell yourself that it's too hard. You've done enough. You've done more than most. At first, you tell yourself this only late in the afternoon when you're tired out, but it's not long before you're telling yourself this before lunch and several times after lunch. And pretty soon, you say this to yourself before you even leave for work, and you repeat it over and over as the day goes by. You've started to slow down, take more and longer breaks, overlook responsibilities, and then one day when you bend down to pick up a sheet of drywall that's supposed to go into the front entryway, you say to yourself, I can't do this anymore. I can't do it, I'm done. And you give up. It's not long before work on the house stops. Parts of it are finished and beautiful, but parts of it are unfinished. And then the builder comes to you and says, here's the key. And when you look surprised, he says, didn't you know it was your own house that we were building? Now, let's change the story slightly. God is a master builder, and he's building something And he's using your experiences to build it. Some of them are light and easy to bear, like the chrome faucet that went to the bathroom. Some are heavy and painful to bear, like the granite countertop that went to the kitchen. The way you bear these experiences is by lifting them to God in faith. In other words, your responsibility in this building program is to trust God with and through your experiences. That's how you bring them to him for him to use. If you stop bringing those experiences, good and bad, hard and easy, to him, that is if you don't persevere in trusting God, the building project grinds to a halt. And God says to you, didn't you know it was your own life we were building? As we saw last week, it requires perseverance for us to finish or strictly speaking, to be finished. To be mature and complete, in St. James's words, not lacking anything. There's no Christian maturity apart from perseverance. There just isn't. The self God designed you to be only comes into existence as you persevere in trusting him. If you don't persevere, you'll only be partially finished. It's not that God can't make something beautiful and glorious with what you've already given him, but it will not be what it could have been. That is, you will not be what you could have been. But your ability to persevere is never so tested. That is, you're never so vulnerable. as in those times when you've already persevered and then assume it's no longer necessary. It's when we think we no longer have to persevere that we get into trouble, deep trouble, soul trouble. If you ask, when can I stop persevering, the answer is never. But understand what that means. It doesn't mean that you can never stop a particular course of action, like teaching a Sunday school class or working at a certain job. The perseverance that must never stop is perseverance in trusting God and obeying what he says. And those, by the way, are just two sides of the same coin. There's never a time when it's safe to stop trusting God, when it's safe to forget about him and just be yourself. You see, you're not yourself, not yet anyway, not until perseverance finishes its work. In the prophet Elijah, we see an example of a good man who quit too soon, who thought he was done before he was, he went through a lot of anguish because of it and was temporarily sidelined from his work. And if it could happen to that great man, it can certainly happen to us. His story is in 1 Kings, and we meet him first in chapter 17. And there we learn that he spent several years living hand to mouth, or actually claw to mouth, but I'll let you read that for yourselves. He was isolated and lonely, he was disliked and had no friends, Now, I have no doubt that this was a time when he experienced great intimacy with God and tremendous personal growth, but it was hard nonetheless. After several years of living like this, chapter 18 records a change. Elijah left his lonely retreat to challenge the institutionalized idolatry and false worship of the nation. And he wasn't messing around either. He went straight to the king himself in whom was embodied almost everything that was wrong in the country. He challenged the king to a duel of sorts. Your God versus my God. It seemed like an enormously risky thing to do. The king had been looking for Elijah for years to have him put to death. Took great courage, and above all, it took faith in God. But Elijah stood the test. He stood firm. Elijah set up a duel between the Lord and the Canaanite god Baal between himself and the prophets of Baal. And you probably know the story. If not, you should read it. It's in 1 Kings 18. Elijah proposed to the king that the Baal prophets build an altar to their God and place a sacrifice on it, and that he would do the same thing to his God, the Lord. But neither they nor he would set fire to the wood under the sacrifice. Let the real God do that. Let him send down fire from heaven the king agreed to this proposal which is interesting to me why he agreed to this proposal Um, the king Ahab is a man who's always looking to his own advantage and it's hard to see how this would be to his advantage except the prophets of Baal were not his thing they were his wife's thing his wife Jezebel. And she also had hundreds of these and hundreds more of the servants of another god named Asherah. And he was responsible for their financial support. So in a sense, this is a win-win situation for Ahab. If these guys prove true, he's, he's great with his wife. If they prove false, he doesn't have to pay for their support anymore. So he agrees to the proposal, And this great crowd of Baal priests with their male order divinity degrees began calling on their God to accept their sacrifice and send fire from heaven. And they go on pleading for hours and hours and hours, but nothing happened. Then it was Elijah's turn. He built a simple altar, poured water on it and all around it to prove that he wasn't doing anything tricky, prayed, and the Lord answered by fire. The prophets of Baal were shown up as frauds. The king was humbled as a great victory for Elijah and the people of God. But that wasn't the end of the story. For three and a half years, there had been a drought in the land. Now that the idolatry had been shown up for what it was, Elijah knew that God would send rain. Now look with me, we're going to pick up the story, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, "'Go eat and drink, for there's the sound of heavy rain.'" So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab. Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So Elijah had persevered through one kind of trial. He trusted God through the years of loneliness and isolation and through the threat of personal injury. Now he needed to persevere in another kind of trial. He needed to persevere in prayer. We're told that he put his face between his knees, which was an unusual posture for prayer among the Old Testament people of God. Yet we know that's what he was doing, even though the text doesn't spell it out, because St. James tells us that in James chapter 5. After a few minutes of praying, maybe an hour, we don't know, he sent his servant to go to a place where the sea was visible apparently to find out if there were storm clouds on the horizon the servant went but there was nothing to see so he came back and he told elijah but elijah persevered in prayer each time when the servant told him there was nothing he prayed again and he did this for 7 times i've had people say to me i prayed about it once and right now i have a man in mind whose wife had cancer and I was visiting with him, and he said to me, I have prayed about it once, I'm not going to pray about it again. That would show a lack of faith on my part. But Elijah would say, the fact that you don't continue praying shows a lack of perseverance on your part, and of faith since it takes faith for a person to persevere in prayer. Elijah kept praying until he got an answer. Now this is important to understand. He didn't have to keep praying because he had weak faith, He was enabled to keep praying because his faith was strong. He understood what was happening. He was convinced that God would send rain as soon as the people's idolatry, the thing that stood in the way, was removed. So when the people said this, chapter 18, verse 39, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, Elijah knew the barrier had been removed and the rains would come. God had promised to send rain. That's chapter 18, verse 1. And Elijah took him at his word. But notice... Believing that God would act did not relieve Elijah from praying until he did act. Quite the opposite. Believing that God would act kept Elijah at his prayers until he saw the answer. It is in prayer, perhaps more than anywhere else, that we learn perseverance. And we must have perseverance. But why doesn't God answer immediately when we pray? Wouldn't that bring him greater glory? Wouldn't that convince unbelievers that he's real? It might. But I doubt it. God doesn't answer immediately because he's chosen to make us his co-workers. That's the Apostle Paul's word. And a great part of our work in this partnership is prayer. He doesn't answer immediately because he often begins to call us to pray long before he intends to answer. He doesn't answer immediately because the answer to the prayer is not as important to God as the development of the prayer. He doesn't answer immediately because it's not miracles that convince unbelievers that God is real. It's knowing a believer who is real who's becoming mature and complete, not lacking anything. He doesn't answer immediately because he'll receive far more glory through the people he crafts than through the prayers he answers. The answers, even when they're remarkable, like a healing or the last-minute provision of some great need, will be forgotten in a few months or a few years, certainly in a generation. But the people he forms each of them spectacular works of art, will never be forgotten. The perseverance we need is largely developed in the school of prayer. If you're not praying, then you're not persevering, and you're not developing the way God wants you to develop. But we won't persevere if we merely pray out of our own wisdom and our own wants. Elijah persevered because he was praying on the basis of a word from the Lord. Remember chapter 18, verse 1, God told him that he was about to send rain. If our prayers grow out of God's will as revealed through his words, we'll be able to persevere until we see an answer. Now, we have every right to ask whether we know this is God's will or not. We can ask but if our prayers originate in our own fickle desires or temporary pains, it's really unlikely that we're going to persevere in praying them until we see an answer. Now, let me illustrate this whole point with a story. <laughs> in the 19th century, the, the finest bell in East Asia belonged to the Shui de Gong. Buddhist Temple in Ragoon. And different temples had these bells and they were something that people were proud of. But during a time of war the bell sank in the river. In the years following engineers tried to raise it but they failed. It was buried in silt and mire. There was n- no stability there and the bell was phenomenally heavy. But then a clever priest asked permission to try to raise the bell on the condition that it be given to his temple if he were successful. The priest had his assistants gather thousands and thousands of bamboo rods. Over a long period, the rods were fastened one at a time to the bell at the bottom of the river. After thousands of them had been fastened, the bell began to move. When the last bamboo rod was attached, the combined buoyancy of all those rods lifted the bell up out of the mire and the river bottom, and they were then able to remove it. And thinking of that, A.B. Simpson wrote this, every whisper of believing prayer is like one of the little bamboo rods. For a time they seem to be in vain, but there comes a last breath of believing supplication, and lo, the walls of Jericho fall. God may call you to pray about something, and he probably has, years before he intends to give the answer. He's using the situation not just to answer a prayer, but to make you more than you could otherwise be as you engage with him in prayer. But we mustn't give up. Elijah didn't give up. He prayed and trusted until he saw the answer. But there was more to follow than he realized. It seems that Elijah thought that once... This was done. Once this prayer was answered and the rains had come, he could finally relax. He could stop persevering. But he stopped too soon. When Queen Jezebel heard what had happened to her prophets of Baal, she was their patron and their protector. She became insanely angry and threatened Elijah's life, and that was too much for the prophet. He fell apart. He gave up. He said to God in chapter 19, verse 4, I've had enough. Lord, I've had enough. He was tired of persevering. He wasn't going to do it anymore. He became so depressed that he begged God, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Now, his life had been threatened before, for a long time. And always before, he had endured hardship without wavering. So what happened here? Why did the prophet, so lately a conquering hero, fall apart? I think he, probably without realizing it, had set an end date in mind. After that date, he was done. No more struggles, a normal life. He thought he was done, but he wasn't. See, important projects come and go. Ministry efforts are launched and they cease. Trials pass, but the time never comes when you can stop trusting God. Elijah had in his mind that this long struggle would be over after the rains came. But to quote Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. And it's never over when it comes to trusting God. I told you what I thought Elijah had in mind. At least the assumption that he held. But it's possible to go beyond that. We know what he was thinking because he tells us. And not just once, he repeats himself. The speech that Elijah makes In chapter 19 is clearly something that he's been rehearsing in his mind over and over and over that's why when he finally gives voice to it it keeps coming out and it comes out verbatim look at verse 10 I have been very zealous for the Lord God almighty the Israelites have rejected your covenant broken down your altars put your prophets to death with a sword I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too that's the speech the seeds for that speech were thoughts that might have been planted years before maybe sitting by the brook carath hiding from his persecutors and probably even before that see as long as he persevered in trusting god those seeds couldn't take root but the moment he stopped they grew and blossomed into this debilitating despair now, there's something here we don't want to miss. Elijah did not stop persevering because of the pressures from without, which were really no worse than they'd always been, but because of the thoughts from within. This great man had endured the pressure from without, and it stood firm. It was the thoughts from within that tripped him up. And so it is with us. I've seen it happen. It's like a switch is flipped in a person's mind and suddenly it goes off the spiritual grid. And yet I don't think it's as sudden as it seems. The negative thoughts have probably come and gone for a long time, but as long as the person's mind is protected by an active trust in God, those thoughts can't do too much harm. But if that trust fails, the mind is left vulnerable. Now, there's one kind of thinking that is particularly destructive to our trust in God and therefore to our perseverance. Look again at verse 4. Where did this, I am no better than my ancestors stuff, come from? This kind of comparison making, it lacks all objectivity, it's notoriously inaccurate, but what's worse is, that it has an effect on our perseverance. When we start making these kinds of comparisons, one of two things happens. We either tell ourselves, I do more than anybody else. And where's it got me? I might as well give up. Or we say to ourselves, I'll never amount to anything. I'll never be like so-and-so. It's impossible. I might as well give up. Either way, our perseverance and trusting the Lord is compromised. If you've been engaged in that kind of thinking recently, you're in a very vulnerable spot, and you need to take steps to change it. Look again at what he says in verse 10, and then repeats word for word in verse 14. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, Put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Nothing can destroy perseverance faster than nursing a sense of injustice. And it kills perseverance because it kills our trust. Or to be more precise, it attacks God's trustworthiness. If you remember, it was on that front that the serpent attacked our first mother. And on that front, he'll attack you too. Now, Elijah fell, or at least he was bowed down. And what happens when, like Elijah, your perseverance fails? What happens when you fall down? This is very important to understand. Your perseverance in trusting God may fail and you may fall down. But God's perseverance in loving you will not fail and he will pick you up. You can see in 1 Kings 19, God doing that in Elijah's life. And you can see how he does it. First, he gave him rest. See, because we are embodied souls, Sometimes the most spiritually beneficial thing we can do is sleep. Which is what God helps Elijah do in verses 5 and 6. He sleeps, he rests, he gets up, he goes back to bed. Then God invited Elijah to speak to him, and God listened, and he did this repeatedly, verse 4, verse 10, verse 14, until Elijah got those words out The words that were blistering his mind and his soul. He couldn't move on. So God listened to him, let him talk. Then, this is verses 15 through 17, God gave Elijah important work to do. That's one of the things God always does with us. And it's a good thing, a grace. And finally, God spoke truth to Elijah. This is verse 18. Elijah's thinking had been skewed, it had to be put to rights. If he was to get on with trusting and obeying God. So God told him the truth. Now, sometimes commentators will point out <clears throat> that after this episode, after Elijah's lapse of perseverance, his effectiveness was never the same. And that may be, but I would warn against putting too much stress on that point. It's true that after this episode, Elijah's successor comes into the picture and he becomes more prominent and Elijah soon leaves the scene. But don't forget it was Elijah who was called to the Mount of Transfiguration to join Moses in serving the Lord of Glory. Elijah's fall did not prevent God from raising him up higher than ever. And neither will yours if you will simply start trusting God again and get on with obeying him. Now let's pray. God, I pray this morning, especially for your children who are here, our friends, Who, right now, have just given out. Maybe who could even hardly bring themselves here this morning. I pray that you will do for them what you did for Elijah. You're the one who lifts up those who fall. I pray that you'll give them what they need. Rest and clarity and truth and work. And starting this morning, get them back on their feet and serving and trusting you. I ask for this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And so let's stand together. And those of you who are serving communion, would you come up and prepare to help us?